Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chipper Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry Rowland, and we're all in great moods, everybody, because (laughs) it's Stuff You Should Know time. Everything else just falls to the wayside when we record Stuff You Should Know. It's just, it's the reason we love doing it still after a thousand episodes. You realize every single listener right now is thinking, why are they in a bad mood and why is Josh being so weird? I don't think I'm being <laughs> weird. Am I being, am I overselling it? I think so. Oh, oh, sorry. It, it makes it sound like we all three were in a big fist fight and then Jerry had recorded. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's like just jammed a Kleenex up her nose to staunch the bleeding. Uh, I am recovering a bit because we just got back from New York City. Dude, it has been a week. I know. So we did, we did show a show Sunday, a show Monday and a show Tuesday, all sold out at the Bell House. Uh huh. Traveled home Wednesday. And are recording today, Thursday. Yes, and I just want to say there's no way that people will ever hear Tuesday's episode because it was the filthiest thing we've ever done on stage. <laughs> it was <laughs> seriously, man. I don't know what got into us. I think it was night three of three. Uh, so that is for the 350 people in that room. I hope they enjoyed it. It was fun. It was fun. And come on out whenever we do a live show. You never know if we're just going to be like, this one's not getting released. Let's just go crazy. Uh Uh-huh. You know, especially it was a 21 and up show, which is really well. Well, that's why we, for sure, why we did it. Yeah. That's what took the feedback off, you know? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Isn't that a saying? I think so. Put the feedback on, take it off. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It's not really, but we'll just press forward. How about that? Let's do. So, Chuck... Uh, I, I know that you know this, but not everybody knows this. I had a personal conversation with one Charles C. Mann, who wrote my favorite book of all time, 1491. That is correct. Uh, and I was talking to Mr. Mann, and he has a – I was talking to him. I've got a, a show coming out on existential risks eventually, but um, and he's going to be in it. It's just like interviewed for it. But he has a book coming out this January. And it's called The Wizard and the Prophet. Have you heard of it? No, but did you just say that he's going to be uh, part of Existential Risks? Yeah, he's an interviewee. Oh, that's it. fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be pretty I, – I was really psyched to, to just be able to talk to him. And even better than that, like, you know, we were kind of rapping for a few minutes beforehand. Sure. And it was just as calm and casual as I had always, like, envisioned talking to him. That's amazing. Would be. Yeah, it was a really, really neat conversation. But he was telling me about the book he has coming out, The Wizard and the Prophet. And it's basically about – uh, him trying to find out how we can possibly, or even if it is possible, um, sustain 10 billion people on planet Earth. Yeah. And not just sustain, meaning like, you know, keeping them alive, but how could we do it sustainably? And he goes back and starts digging in and finds that there's this long-standing headbutt between the techno-optimists, the people who are like, well, we humans are smart enough to invent our way out of any problem. Yeah. And the people who are like, no, we need to really like mitigate a lot of things that we're doing right now to to make sure that we actually can keep doing this for the foreseeable future. Uh, and part of it is on Norman Borlaug. Um, and is he the wizard? He is the wizard. That's actually absolutely right. The, oh, wow. the, the prophet is a guy named William Vogt. 
uh, V-O-G-T, I believe is his uh-huh. name. And uh, he, uh, I don't know as, nearly as much about him as Norman Borlaug, which is to say I know basically zero about him, but he's the prophet. So I will know all about him when the book comes out in January. I'm psyched about it. But as I was researching this permaculture article, I was like, you can really see that that same headbutt, that same push and pull between people who are saying we need sustainability. And other people are like, we need to feed, you know, billions and billions of people. And that really comes together in the debate over permaculture and whether it works or whether it is just just a pie in the sky kind of idea. Well, I have a little something to say. Okay. I am uh, a bit of an ur- well, not a bit. I'm an urban permaculturist. That's awesome. We have not me as like I don't know much. Of, well, I do know about this stuff now after researching it. But we uh, have are redoing our front and backyards, and we hired a permaculture company to do so. Really, the per- permaculture pros? <laughs> That's not their name, but sh- <laughs> maybe it should be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're, we are like right in the middle of making our small little piece of Atlanta, um, a, a permaculture, urban permaculture. <laughs> I know, it's hard to say now that I'm saying it out loud. An urban perm habitat, if you will. Herb perm. That's right. So, so I'll uh, be peppering, you know, little things here and there. I think that would help a lot. Yeah. Man. Because, um, Permaculture, as it turns out, and I didn't know really anything about it until we started researching this, um, it is a woolly idea. It's tough to pin down, which is really weird because it's actually a set of design principles uh, meant to grow food for people in a way that's sustainable and not harmful. And it basically stands yeah. in, in contradiction of what you would consider like big modern agriculture, which is... We grow one kind of food and we squeeze as much as we possibly can out of it from the ground we have using as much artificial resources as we possibly need to, to increase our yield. Yeah, and that's like people throw around the word sustainable or unsustainable. Um, and maybe people, sometimes folks don't even stop to think about what that means. Sustainable, or I guess we'll, we'll start with unsustainable. That means that you are... You are depleting resources around you, and you are depending very much on bringing in different resources to make that thing work. Right. Like you're not just using what's available. Like that's what sustainable would be. You're using what's available. It all works together to ideally sustain itself without saying, well, now I need to bring in this thing from way over here to make this these uh, 300 acres of corn grow. Yeah, I've got to go burn a bunch of fossil fuels to create nitrogen-based fertilizer, and uh, it's not going to attach to the soil very well, so a lot of it will run off and be wasted. And even worse, it'll end up in a pond, which will create an algae bloom, which sucks up all of the uh, right. dissolved oxygen, which creates a fish kill. That's unsustainable. Yes. And, and it's weird, because I, I hadn't really thought about that either, Chuck, but as growing up as like kids who were sentient in the 90s you hear unsustainable and it's just basically in your mind equated with evil like almost intentionally right. malicious acts against the earth and that's just not necessarily the case and that that's another thing about like norman borlaug the wizard um he had the greatest of intentions but you can also lay at his feet 
a lot of the the ecological problems we're facing right now because of agriculture and the agricultural yeah. practices he he helped pioneer sure. in order to feed a bunch of people. So there's this 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 tension between unsustainability and sustainability, but it's also a tension between what's realistic and what's not. You know? Yeah, it's definitely a little sticky. It is a little sticky. But uh, per- permaculture basically is trying to create like a harmonious holistic approach to um, farming and whether it be a large farm or like in my case, like an urban, uh, small urban plot. Uh, and like I said, we'll kind of go over both of those uh, through my lens right? and then through the larger ideas of the farm. Um, and it's not like Robert Lamb wrote this article from uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. He did a good job with it. Always does. He does. But um, it, he does point out that you shouldn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go back to caveman days and like you have to live like tuk tuk and scavenge the earth. Right. Um, he said to think of it uh, in terms of a river, like you were a boat floating down a river, <laughs> and you were sustained by that river, but you were also navigating it as well with your rudder. And if you have to pee right now, it just increased tenfold. <laughs> That's right. So uh, yeah, it's 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 not like just passively taking from the land what it has to offer. There's still management of it, right? Oh, yeah, but the, But the idea behind that management of it is is managing the land um, in a way that, that the land is happy with. Yeah, kind you know of working with what you got. Like you can walk past a dog that's just sitting there looking at you and maybe, you know, give it like a wink or something like that and keep walking. Um, that's passive. But if you stop and scratch it behind the ear... You're managing that dog in a way or something like that. You're at least interacting with it more, and the dog likes it. You could also walk past the dog and, like, poke it in the ribs. Yeah. Th- that's interacting with it in a way that the dog wouldn't like. <laughs> Permaculture's the middle one, right? Sure. So you're saying, hey, I want to get something out of you, like a good feeling, so I'm going to scratch you behind the ear, Earth. And again, like you said, you're doing that by trying to create a system, uh, whether it's your little plot of land or a full-scale industrial size farm um, in in a way that it has it's sustainable meaning it requires as few external inputs as possible that's right uh, but, but sorry I just need to point it again uh-huh. it's still being managed it's still yeah. being managed by you just right. in a harmonious way yeah I, I think there's a word for the other thing where you just uh, just let everything do its thing right yeah I, that's nature maybe that like wilding or something or rewilding uh, Have we talked about that? No, we I'm, never I'm, did. I'm, prob- I'm probably wrong anyway. Although we also thought we didn't do a cat episode, so who knows if we've talked <laughs> about it before or not. Uh, all right, so this all goes back to uh, Australia, and see you in September of next year, Australia. Yep. Right? Yep. Get ex- Get excited. Oh, man, you just sold us a million tickets <laughs> with that accent, buddy. Uh, and New Zealand. Um so <laughs> you got to you got to take it better than that. Well no, I'm I'm super excited about going to New Zealand. I okay. just I didn't want to not mention that. You say and New Zealand. <laughs> and New Zealand. Uh so in Australia in the 1970s there were a couple of dudes named Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. Mm-hmm. And I imagine they were sitting around smoking a joint one night and and the version that I have in my head. Oh yeah. <laughs> when they dreamed up the word permaculture in 1978. Uh, which is basically what we've been talking about. This is just put a word on it. Um, Actually, two words, permanent and agriculture, yeah, right? good point. And they said, let's join those up. And he said, right. <laughs> and that was it. That's how it went down. 
Uh, and it's a self-sustaining alternative to like what you were talking about, which is mass production of a single crop. And there are three basic ethics to the permaculture movement. Yeah. Um, care for the earth, care for the people, and then setting limits on population and consumption. Right. And so Mollison, I believe, was a, a professor at the time, and Holmgren was his student, and they, they split within a few years. They had creative differences, I guess you could kind of call it. Oh, yeah? They both, like, pursued permaculture, but through different ways. So Mollison is frequently um, accused, or was, I think he may have passed, um, accused of being kind of a uh, dogmatic, um, charismatic egomaniac, maybe? Ooh. Where it was like, it's my way or the highway. <laughs> um, and and that, that extended to even principles of permaculture, right? Like if he said it, it was just, that was just true. Whereas Holmgren apparently took a little more of a, um, a pragmatic approach to studying it, finding out the best practices, discarding the ones that didn't work, even mm-hmm. if they were like precious to everybody, including the entire per- permaculture movement. And, and movement is actually the right word because there is like this definite, um, well, like, Mollison put the cult in permaculture. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like there's definitely an adherency to it that's kind of fervent, you know, that, that the whole movement gets criticized for rightfully or wrongly. Yeah. But they're, they're both kind of, um, I think the fact that they did split probably added to this field even more because there's two different courses of study or of um, thinking about it at least um, that were able to develop in tandem. Yeah, and this stuff is nothing new. They didn't invent this idea because Tuk Tuk and the gang way back in the ancient days mm-hmm. did things like this. They worked with what they had. They didn't have 400 acres of corn. They had, they did forest farming. They had crop rotation. They composted. They had multiple crops. Uh, and they were not just out to be leading pioneers in environmentalism. They were, that was just the way you worked the earth back then. Right. And that's a lot of what permaculture is all about is returning to this idea of, of just sort of doing it the smart, right way. Uh, and again, this is probably not going to be the thing that feeds the world, but that's not to say you can't have a permaculture movement and farms and urban permaculture going on. Well, that's one of the things that it gets criticized about is that people um, who are big-time adherents of permaculture do tend to say, like, uh, yeah, this is this is what we need to feed the world, and if we don't do this, then the, there's not going to be people around to feed because we're going to wreck the earth and die from climate change. Yeah, I, I get that, but I think... I come from the like reality camp and you're not going to undo conventional modern farming. You, you're not going to just completely supplant that anymore. It's kind of too late. I, I agree with you. I, I'm of the same mindset. You know, um, I do think though that you, the, these practices or most of them should be incorporated as best as possible. Sure. That'd be great. So I think there's a happy medium between, you know, big, big time monoculture agriculture. And a pure permaculture, just because they're both probably unsustainable for what we need, which is to feed a bunch of people in a way that doesn't wreck the earth. Agreed. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Should we take a break? Sure. All right. We're going to take a little uh, little pause for the cause and then come back. <laughs> that was so corny. That sounded like a radio <laughs> DJ. It was great. Uh, and then come back and talk about design principles of permaculture right after this. 
Okay, you back? We back? Are we back? <laughs> I'm back. Okay, I'm back too. Jerry, you back? back. She's she, back. She's back. So, um, like I said early on, Chuck, the, uh, the permaculture is a little, it's woolly. It's a woolly idea. There's so many different definitions of it. And as a result, it's, it's, um, image kind of suffers in the mind of rational skeptics, right? Yes. But I did find one, um, one definition of it that I thought really got the whole point across. Hit me. The conscious design and maintenance of agriculturally productive systems, which have the diversity, stability, and resilience of natural ecosystems. That's a big one. There's a second half even. It is the harmonious integration of the landscape with people providing their food, energy, shelter, and other material and non-material needs in a sustainable way. That is a great definition. I agree wholeheartedly, and I'm not sure who uh, the actual person who who said or wrote it was because it was misattributed to at least three different people. But regardless, it's a great definition. We should just throw your name in there, too. Sure. We'll say I said it. <laughs> so you said you brought up the three basic ethics, right? The care for Earth, care for people, and setting limits on population. Correct. I feel like we should kind of go over those a little in depth, don't you think? Yeah. Care for Earth is um, – it's not just – like a lot of this is about plants, of course, but it's also animals and insects and how the air moves through the area and minerals in, in the earth. Um, and it's basically respecting all of the things within the ecosystem. Right. How's that? I think that's great. What about what people? About care for people, right? So yeah. basically that's saying like um, that there's a, an importance to community. That it's Every person isn't just an island, right? And that this is a big one, too, that access to resources is a human right. And it's easy to take that for granted, you know, where in places where you you have easy access to um, land or water or something like that. But in places as diverse as Flint, Michigan or Central America, they're, they're the access to good stuff like water is highly restricted or the water's just not good. So yeah. the idea that everybody should have easy, cheap, if not free access to something like clean water is that's a that's a big one. That's a, that's kind of radical in a weird way these days. Yeah, and as far as the uh, limits on population and consumption, Robert puts it as uh, recognizing uh, how you have to reinvest money and uh, surplus labor and energy into caring for the planet. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's it takes work. So those are like the three ethics. That's not how you go permaculture. That's just kind of the basis for the designs to permaculture, right? Correct. And I think um, you said that this is this is not new, right? This is something that's been around for a very long time or these some of these ideas or the sustainable practices are adopted from like generations and generations of proven techniques, right? Yes. Um, which is pretty interesting, if you ask me. Uh, that's another thing too. If if you if you have not read, have you read fourteen ninety one yet? Nope. Oh man, you have to read it. It talks about this kind of stuff where, like they 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 from just looking into it, they've in, they've found that there's all these sophisticated land management techniques that were just totally lost to time until. Um, archaeologists started discovering them and at first they didn't even realize what they were looking at and they'd be like well there's a lot of kind of weird hills in this this area it's otherwise pretty flat and then they realized oh wait this is an entire 
system of berms that used to be planted. And in between the berms were aquaculture ponds where they raised fish. And they, they were just doing all this sophisticated stuff that no one had any idea. And f- that book is just all about chasing that stuff down and figuring it out. So so good, Chuck. One day you'll read it, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah. So uh, before the break, I promised some design principles. And there are, I believe, like 10 of these in uh, our article. And it breaks down like this. And this is this is talking about a farm, but we have incorporated in this company that's come in is incorporating these uh, most of these same principles within like our as place as small as our backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, zones. We have divided our yard up into zones now. Uh, and basically, in the case of a farm, it's a little bit different. They divide areas into zones based on based on the and all this stuff. It just sort of makes sense. And it's all seems like it would be intuitive and in how mm-hmm. Tuk Tuk would have done it. So it, it divides into zones based on like how much attention certain things need on the farm and what does it require out of people in the different areas. And so if, if you think of it as a circle, you got your farm in the center. So obviously the stuff that needed the most attention would be closest to, uh, the, the, the center where the people are. And then as you go out and out, uh, the activity uh, decreases like the human activity right. and things are allowed like maybe trees to grow a little more wildly. Right. Yeah. So like the zone is kind of like ripples in, in a pond or something, right? They're con- concent- concentric circles. Yeah. Radiating from the center. And I guess the center is the actual farmer in this case, your house. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's understandable enough. And then you look into something called sectors and that's kind of similar it seems like but it's actually not with sectors again the center of the whole the whole uh, permaculture land or whatever is the farm where the people live or whatever and then it the the zone or the sectors radiate outward so the whole thing is one big circle around the center but this time it's sliced into like like pizza slices basically all right, well, I'm hungry enough. Okay, so but with that, so that doesn't mean like you do sectors or zones. These are two different ways of looking at the land that that will overlay one another, right? And I've seen a couple of places that recommend if you're setting up a, a permaculture farm, you want to spend basically an entire year doing nothing but observing. Don't plant anything, don't cut anything down, don't dig a pond, don't do anything like that. Just observe. Figure out where the sun is at different parts of the year. Where does the wind come from? Where does the water go? Um, are there pollutants that come in, onto the property uh, that you need to, to you know, manage? Uh, where do the animals, like if there's deer that come in and eat the, eat the garden, like where would they be coming from? And so that's what you base the, the sectors on. And then that uh, that creates kind of like this underlying map beneath the zones. Does that right. make sense? Yes. Okay. And I got that one right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, I'm sure a permaculture expert would say, oh, boys. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, relative location is another important part of uh, permaculture. That is basically designing things, and again, in a way that makes sense, relative to one another. So the great example that Robert gives is is planting a crop downhill from a pond. That way it's downhill. You don't need to install a pump system. Mm-hmm. The whole idea is sustainability. And so if you can have uh, the stuff you need to water downhill from your water, 
then you have just created a sustainable environment. Right. And th- that one is um, – there's a – it's an actual design principle. Like uh, David Holmgren came up with 12 of them. One of them was called integrate rather than segregate, and that one's definitely part of that. That's right. There's also um, – Having single elements with multiple functions, right? Yes. So uh, going back to that, that like a pond example, um, a pond also um, not only serves as a source for irrigation, but it's also a water source for your livestock. And depending on where you put it, it also acts as a barrier between your livestock and the edge of your property. Yeah. So you don't even need a fence because exactly. cows aren't going to swim across a pond. No. You try to find one doing it. They won't do it. <laughs> Or, or a hedge, a hedge, a uh, lovely hedge can act as a wind block, things like that. Right. Or And and it can also like produce seeds that your chickens eat, right? Right. Or shade if you need shade. Right. And so all that, I mean, that just makes like total sense. Mm-hmm. Of course you want to do that. But when you stop and think about w- the fact that they don't do this on big modern farms, like this stuff is not, that's just wasted area where you could be planting more corn. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they don't do, uh, most people don't think about this when they're designing their home backyards either. They want, uh, they just say, this looks pretty, that looks pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and it may be laid out in such a way that it's completely unharmonious and working against each other at times. Right. You know, right. Why is that thing dying? It's so pretty. It's like, well, it's not, it's not where it should be. Um, another permaculture principle that stands in stark opposition to monoculture is having uh, a single thing um, have just one function or have, okay, a bunch of different things serving as fail-safes to one another. You see what I'm saying? Right. So like that pond um, can also provide water, right? So you, it's a it's a water reservoir. Um, but you may also have rain barrels on site as well. So you have all these different things serving multiple functions, but also serving backups to the functions that they share with one another. Right. And uh, again, this is the idea that you're doing this if you take the time to diversify. Like this is where the idea that you, you shouldn't put all of your eggs in one basket, it came from the farm. Yeah, and this is this per, per, like some of these principles are just getting back to that very simple maxim, which is you you have to diversify, and the more you diversify, the better off you're going to be. If something befalls, like if an avian flu wipes out your chicken flock, well, if all you do is raise chickens, you're ruined. Yeah, your your family's going to starve. You're going to lose all of your money, and the farm's going to be taken from you. If chickens are just one part of a larger holistic farm you have going on, then you lose your chickens, and that's awful. But you still have, you know, you can you can cut off a cow's foot and chew on that for the winter. <laughs> you know where the chicken and, and the eggs in the basket comes from, right? Where that little Bobby Joe going out to get the chicken eggs one morning, mm-hmm. taking one basket. He says, "Pa, I got him. Don't don't fret." And then he trips on the way back and breaks all his eggs. And yeah. Pa says, "Put all the chicken eggs in one basket. Now we ain't got no eggs." Yeah. And then Bobby Joe says, "Well, then Pa have more kids or get more baskets." That's right. <laughs> and that happened in December of 1842 <laughs> in Georgia. That's right. Those were my relatives. That was a great. Were they Choctaw? No, no, no. This is from the other side of the family. The other side, okay. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> the redneck side. Uh, energy efficiency is a big deal. Using uh, energy efficient designs, whether or not you are straight up using 
like wind power or solar, mm-hmm. or you can just simply, like I said, build things in a way where you have natural wind breaks built in or places to allow the wind to come through and spread seed and stuff like that. Right. Uh, my favorite dude of all is the biological resources. Let's hear it. So it's just basically using nature to help solve the problems that you have, right? So um, Mollison, one of the uh, creators of it, what is his first name again? Bill, Bill Mollison. He had a saying, you don't have a snail problem, you have a duck deficiency, which is to say that... (laughs) That was a great t-shirt, too. It it was for a little while. It was almost outsold gas, grass, or, you know. Yeah, no one Um, writes for free. (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, but the, the, the premise of it is that if you uh, are overrun with snails, get more ducks because the ducks are going to eat the snails and it's fine. It's good to have ducks because they do other stuff, too. Like they walk around and poop um, all over your property. Everywhere. Fertilizing it as they're doing it. Right. Yeah. So um, the, just to kind of take a take a step back and look at it like, OK, what how just say, like, what would nature do? Yeah. That's a great way to solve your problems through per- permaculture. Um, another one is um, using pigs and, or chickens to till the ground mm-hmm. and to actually rotate where you plant crops every year. And so this year's pig pen is next year's cropland because you can move the pigs on to another area and they'll turn it all muddy and turn it up and, and get it ready for planting uh, just like they did for this year's cropland that you're using now. Pretty great. Insects, too. Yeah. Very big thing to bring in the right kinds of plants to attract the right kinds of insects to take care of the wrong kinds of insects. Right. But great. I love it. This raises an issue, though, too. Um, One of the criticisms of permaculture is it's like, well, where are you going to bring in those insects from? Right. So if, for example, if you order ladybugs online, it can actually be really bad for the ladybugs that live in your area. Because if they are lab-raised or farm-raised ladybugs, they very frequently carry a parasite that you're bringing now into your neighborhood, and you can wipe out the existing native ladybug population. So what do you do? Well, the permaculture way would be to say, I need to attract more native ladybugs because i got aphids on my lemon trees. So how do I do that? Well, you just plant more high-pollinating plants like sunflowers and um, voila, native ladybugs, parasite-free. Love it. I didn't know people bought ladybugs online. Yeah. That's a thing. I, I know that because I've had aphids before. I looked into it. <laughs> you said, Doc, i got aphids in my lemon tree. <laughs> he said, come here. Oh, One in a million a shot. <laughs> uh, plant succession is another design principle. Um, if you think about how land was before people were uh, messing around with it in right. a natural scene um (laughs) things would just sort of grow and develop as they as nature intended and fields uh, might be barren and then grow into weeds and that 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 might eventually grow into plants that may eventually grow into trees and then what do you know you have a forest right so robert makes the case like that's apparently the natural progression of a temperate area yeah that if you leave it alone for long enough it's going to turn into a forest i didn't realize that I guess it makes sense. So this is basically saying, well, how can we how can we do that? If that's the way the plant, if that's the way that the area wants to be, how can we accommodate that while also getting, um, you know, food food staples from that too? Right. Uh, there's also nutrient recycling, which is basically composting. And I was thinking the other day, I don't answer enough 
when asked what my favorite episode is, mm-hmm. composting is definitely up there. Oh, yeah? That was a great one. All right. If you're digging this episode at all, go listen to composting if you haven't already. It's a good one. Yeah, and finally, diversity, uh, raising multiple crops, um, having different kinds of animals. Uh, like we said, we've kind of been beaten up on corn. But that's the idea is to not have, you know, a thousand acres of a thing and have many different things. So, like you said, the benefits there are if, if something comes along that is an illness to a crop, you're not wiped out completely. Right. You know? So, speaking of wiping out, let's take a break for a second, okay? Are you wiped out? I'm a little wiped. I need to regenerate here. Okay. Okay. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. I'm feeling restored, Chuck. Good. Well, you took a nap on my shoulder, and that always helps. I know. I got a little drool on your <laughs> sleeve. Okay. I'm sorry. No big deal. Uh, okay, so when when you're talking about this, like design principles are great and and good, and they are really interesting to me. I think ecology is incredibly fascinating. Um, but there, to to actually feed people, you have to take them into action and like do something. And people have been trying this, right, to varying degrees of success and, more importantly, to varying degrees of scientific study. Um, I ran across a, a professor in, I believe, the U.K. at a place called Schumacher College. Uh, her name is Bethan Stagg. And she, uh, I get the impression Schumacher College is a little crunchy. Sure. I think they're the fighting granola. A little hippy-dippy. Uh, just a tad. Uh, but one of the things they teach is permaculture. And so Beth and Stagg, one of the professors there, um, basically studied this permaculture next to traditional like gardening um, uh, plots that are the same size. They're, they're like everything's the same. The amount of wind and rain and sun they're getting. The difference is one is one is cultivated in a through permaculture methods. The other one's more just like traditional gardening, like go buy fertilizer and stuff like Who that. Who won? Right? Who won? It depends on your definition of one. Well, which one was lying dead in a field afterward? <laughs> the, the, herb, the regular gardener or the well, other they, person? They both got a couple of good licks in on one another. Okay. U- ultimately, I think most people would say that the traditional gardening um, or the, the normal modern gardening method won. Oh, and wow. The, the reason why it won was because for a hundred, for every hundred square meters of land, it yielded 13 kilograms of edible food. Okay. The permaculture one yielded 2.3 kilograms per 100 meters. So far, far, far less food was grown. But there's a couple of things you got to point out here. There was also far, far, far less time put into the permaculture plot because that's one of the tenets of permaculture is just like, like plant this stuff and then just forget about it. You're not ever supposed to mess with it again except to, to harvest stuff. There's an emphasis on perennials rather than annuals. There's far less inputs that are meant to be made into it. It's just supposed to be like a, like a little engine you, you build and then start and it just keeps going forever. Yeah. So far less time and far less effort on the per- permaculture side. So it kind of wins in that respect, right? 
But then also, there was, over this three-year study, there were also uh, at least one year where the weather was really bad. And so the uh, normal modern gardening suffered as a result, whereas the permaculture one, which was more diversified, had about the same yield as the other years. So, So they both won. They're all winners. It's like a soccer game. Yeah, and I think the idea too is it's not like uh like that's the kind of test that should be carried out over a hundred years almost. Yes. And the whole point is that though still that permaculture is not like they're not saying we will shall create more yield than any other farm. That's not the whole point. Uh, again, though, it depends on who you talk to. There are definitely permaculture adherents out there who think that anyone who doesn't use per- permaculture is an idiot who's ruining, ruining the planet and this is the way. No, I'm not saying that, but are they saying that they can, they can provide more yield than conventional farming? I think if you backed them into a corner, they would probably hedge that, but I think that when they're amongst themselves, they may, yes. Okay. <laughs> You're like, you guys totally know we can't comp- – yeah, okay. We just won't talk about it. <laughs> Shut up, Simon. <laughs> um, so there are people doing this to varying degrees all over the world, whether or not is uh, – if you have a full-scale permaculture farm, then you are uh, almost 100 percent likely to be a, pulmico- a permaculture activist or an <laughs> educator. Um, it's not something you're doing lightly. You may also be – Someone who's like, well, you know, I'm part of my part of my farm here. I'm I'm doing in the, in such a manner. Part of it, I'm not. Um, but there are things that you can do even at your own home, like a forest garden. Well, that that's like what permaculture seems to really be best at is is backyard gardening. Yeah. So tell them about the forest garden because I found this fascinating, man. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a, if you have a back lawn that is just a, a big grass lawn, um, and you know, during our grass episode, we, uh, we didn't get preachy, but a lot of people will say, like, that's the worst thing you can do is just to have a huge flat thing of grass. Right. Uh, as far as what's good for the earth. And that's a total, uh, I mean, once in that, I think I remember we talked about that literally being just like a, an American creation in the fifties or something. No, it was, even before older that? than that. Yeah, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was pretty American. Yeah. Maybe English. So a forest garden is uh, a food garden that you build or plant. <laughs> you build it out of wood and iron. <laughs> right. Uh, in your backyard to that imitates a natural forest. So you're trying to sort of replicate what you might find in that natural setting in your yard. Uh, and this is going to, like you said, make things a little easier on you because you're not going to have to rotate crops or till like you normally would. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything's just sort of working together. And and Robert has sort of a four-part example, four layers, if you will, uh, starting with trees, which are going to – obviously the biggest thing in that forest garden, they're going to uh, eat most of that sunlight. But they're also going to let dappled light through, which can be great growing conditions for certain things. Right. Um, so the, there's, you're going to grow things like blackberries or leaf lettuce or strawberries, um, any vines that are shade loving that, produ- that, are, that produce food. But the, the point of this is like the tree isn't just like, well, here's a tree. Isn't that great? Um, it's like the tree also provides, uh, stability for the vine to climb up, right? Right. Or like you said, it provides shade for these shade loving plants. And I guess the point, and I didn't really see anywhere, 
explained why people do this. I know it's like an ancient technique from um, South America, I believe, like in, in the Brazilian rainforest. It's used to great uh, impact. What, the but, trees? Yeah, forest for, agroforestry, basically, uh-huh. is, is what it's called. But um, the I, I didn't really see what the benefits of it are, especially if it limits you to shade-loving food plants, right? Because there's plenty of food plants out there that don't love shade. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Well, I guess let me talk about what we're doing. Okay. So this lady came in, and she's a company owner, and she takes a look at our yard, and she's basically, instead of saying, hey, let's plant a tree that will take 20 years to grow to provide whatever shade and then go, she's like, let's let's look at what you got now. Because Atlanta is an urban forest on its own, mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. and there are trees everywhere. So we, we had existing trees and stuff, and she basically just sort of looks at everything, draws up a design, and then comes back to us and said, here's what we're going to do. Um, and that she's working mainly with Emily because this was sort of her initiative, and she knew more about it than I did, and Emily is more the gardener in the family. Way to go, Emily. Yeah, but uh, I was on board, you know, and I was sitting in on these meetings going, this sounds great, this sounds great. <laughs> uh, so she would say, all right, you have shade over here, so why don't we think about this here, um, like blueberry bushes. Um, this is where you might want to think about putting your herbs, and downwind from there, uh, because of how the way the wind blows through your yard, you might want to think about this there. And we can move, like we had certain things that we wanted to keep, mm-hmm. like some azaleas and some roses and things. And she was like, we got to move those because they're not in the right place. So we'll put that over here, move this over there. And then before you know it, she's drawn a schematic for a sustainable backyard that all works together. And, you know, the, the insects from the one plant are close to the where they need to be to, to help kill insects that affect the other plant. Right. And, you know, I wish I... Well, it's probably isn't great to get too wonky over my yard, but it, it just all works together in harmony. And we're doing it in stages. Uh, the main thing, big, big change that we've done, aside from rearranging and planting new things, is we got a uh, a cistern, finally. So we have a big, huge, geez, I don't even know how many gallons. I want to say like 500 gallon. No. It's large. Wow. I mean, it's as big as... That's a, that's a above ground swimming pool. I think you're describing. <laughs> is it? Is that too many gallons? Five hundred. That's a lot. I don't know. Let's let's say this. It is as big as a. It's like half as big as a Volkswagen Beetle. Wow. It's large. So this is under our deck. So it's not an eyesore or anything. Um, all the gutters in the house, all the water that falls onto our roof, mm-hmm. is fed into the cistern, and then that cistern has pipes that they trenched and they go all underground throughout the whole yard mm-hmm. and just sort of uh, leach water where it needs to be. Neat. And then there's also a couple of pumps. Uh, we didn't have spigots in our backyard. Um, we still don't. It's been awful. You know, we haven't had a, we've had to run like hundreds of feet of hose every time we wanted to water anything. Uh, and it just feels wasteful anyway. Right. And so we didn't have backyard spigots. And so now we have these two posts with the little pumps and uh, it's, sort of gravity fed in a way like if the cistern is full and you turn that pump on mm-hmm. it'll water will flow some but then we have an actual pump installed on the cistern to where we can actually 
use a sprinkler if we want to. But but the the pump is squirrel run by a hamster wheel, right? <laughs> I wish. And it's it's located in the um, the uh, chestnut tree, so it's going <laughs> to attract the squirrels anyway. No, it sadly it does run on electricity. I wish it was hooked up to solar, but uh, we're not that far along yet. That's pretty cool, though, man. That's a that's a neat pro, uh, plan you got going. It on. is pretty awesome. And guess what? We have a swale. Oh, I was hoping we were going to be able to talk about swales. I yeah. love swales. Yeah, Robert didn't include this in his article, but I sent you a thing on swales. Mm-hmm. And we have a swale, which is to say, in the back right corner of our yard now, we have a a tiny pond. It's only about five feet across mm-hmm. uh, by five feet across, and it is round, and it has a, a like a round berm around it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's like a little hill. And a swale, the definition of a swale, it is a, is, is a level ditch that is dug across uh, whatever site you're in mm-hmm. with the purpose of stopping the flow of water in order to make the water slowly filter into the land right. instead of rushing over it. And the idea there is is that most people design their yards uh, so water won't accumulate and it will run – it's graded in such a way that water – rainwater will just run off of it as quickly as possible. Right. And that's – you know, that's very wasteful, and that's not how the ground – the ground is supposed to accept the water. I know that sounds so hippie. <laughs> right. But in an ideal situation, the ground accepts the water into it, and it's not dry a day later. Mm-hmm. It is actually feeding the ground. Mm-hmm. And so this swale now has uh, has a, a runoff from the uh, cistern. So when the cistern gets too full, the water will then run out into the swale – and just sort of slowly leach into the ground around it. Or if we get just tons and tons of rain, obviously the swale will collect it and the water will leach into the ground around it. That is very cool. That is swale. It's, it is super swale. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an important part. Like when this lady came over, she's like, well, you got to have a swale. Yeah. And I, all right. She's like, swales are my biggest seller. And right now it's not the, the most attractive thing in the world. But over time, we're planting instead of grass in between <laughs> everything or even mulch, we're doing ground cover. I can't remember the specific variety, but ground cover or, or mulch are the two most sustainable ways to treat your yard, period. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense because the, the mulch will break down, right? And degrade yeah. and, and become nutrients. Yeah, so it's it's pretty neat. Like, we got a good scene. It's going to be years in the making. Well, that's another thing, too. I mean, like, you got to be very patient with this kind of stuff. Yeah, but we're in, though. That's great, man. Congratulations. We're, we're not um, going anywhere. There are, and I'm wondering, um, I, you seem to have a pretty realistic approach to permaculture, though. Like, you're not going to save the world with your backyard, it sounds like. But it's certainly not hurting some of the issues that the, the world is facing, right? No, we're just trying to create our own little sustainable habitat. So there are, there are we should mention, some criticisms of permaculture, a lot of criticisms of permaculture, we should say. But... Um, they, you know, we've kind of hit on a couple of them, but the big one probably is that it's not rigorously tested scientifically enough. That it's just kind of taken like, oh yeah, that didn't, that would work intuitively, and then that it's just left at that in a lot of ways. So there are people like uh, Beth and Stag, who I mentioned, and, and other people around the world who are starting to apply science to these things to say this one works. Let's keep at it. Uh, this one works better if you do it this way or this one doesn't work at all don't waste your time right um and as long as they're doing that permaculture deserves any respect it it can get because it, it really is again intuitively it makes a lot of sense but um 
that doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's true in fact, which is why you got to study that kind of thing. Yeah, and the other thing that I saw in the Roberts article that did make sense to me was one of the criticisms was to Mollison himself because he apparently had a stress on bringing in exotic plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes counter to everything that our lady uh, for her company talked about. She is all about native plants. Like right. only native plants. And Mollison's response was, well, we've already screwed up the earth so bad that it, we're not trying to preserve ecosystems as they are specifically. We're, um, we're trying to make them better through management. And it's like, um, actually you just contradicted everything you yeah. said back in 1978. And I think that's a pretty good example of, from what I understand of that guy. He's like, well, this is what I'm saying now. So this is true. Gotcha. You know what I mean? That's hmm. just, and I've never met him, never heard him speak, anything like that. Just from reading about him, that's the impression that I have. Gotcha. So uh, to the Molson family, sorry if that's not right. <laughs> you got anything else? Got nothing else. You'll you have to come over in, in two years. I, <laughs> I'll i take you up on it. I don't want you to see it now. I've been waiting for this invitation for 10 years. <laughs> well, it's, it's going to be so 12 total. So. 12 total. All right. <laughs> Uh, if you want to know more about permaculture, you can type that word into the search bar at How Stuff Works. And uh, since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this harrowing story from a uh, fashion design intern. Yeah. It was a good one. And I got her permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, guys, listen to internships. Wanted to say thanks for addressing this issue. When I was in college, I went to work or wanted to work in the fashion industry. And the internship process was very difficult and exploitive. I managed to somehow get an internship without any connections, uh, which felt nearly impossible, and worked my first gig for a top designer. And uh, she did not name the designer. In a follow-up email, she mm-hmm. did, but then said, maybe don't read it. Okay. But it's a top designer. Okay. And not only was the internship unpaid in one of the most expensive cities in the world, but I was also expected to wear an all-black fashionable wardrobe at all times. Mm-hmm. So I had to find housing in New York, Buy all new clothes. Uh, Luckily, my parents were able to help me out there, but I hated how prohibitive the whole thing was. Uh, While I was with that designer, the uh, Condé Nast lawsuits were going on, and I remember people saying the lawsuit was was just another example of stereotypical millennial entitlement. That's obviously not the case because, as you mentioned, it's a social issue. Because of my internship, I was able to get more experiences in the fashion industry and eventually a full-time job in New York after I graduated. Everyone I work with now had unpaid fashion internships, and almost everyone I work with is white, upper class, and from a good school. Unpaid internships have led to bigger problems in diversity that I think uh, really have hurt the fashion industry. You always hear about how retail and department stores are dying. Uh, well, all the companies are run by old, white, straight dudes, and we lack a variety of perspectives which prevents innovation. I'm glad I had internships, and I learned a lot, but... I think the internship market really needs to change. So thanks again for addressing this. Hope a lot of people listen to your podcast and reevaluate how they do things at their own companies. And that is from Gail. Thanks a lot, Gail. Nice one. Yeah, well, Great a good one, one, actually. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Gail did, you can tweet to us. I'm at SYSK Podcast or at Josh Um Clark. Chuck's at Charles W. Chuck Bryant on Facebook and at Stuff You Should Know on Facebook. I'm on there, too, somewhere, although I'm not sure where. You can send us all an email, including Jerry, J-E-R-I, to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And in the meantime, hang out with us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.